Kelby Leary is the mother of all petrels. Fucking right I am. (laughs) (laughs) Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of Natural Science Daily. First of all, I do want to apologize for not having an episode last week. Work had been crazy busy and with everything else going on, I just really did not have time to put anything together. So I'm sorry for that. Thank you for those who reached out and asked to make sure everything was okay because there wasn't an episode, but I do hope I made up for it with a pretty good quiz this past weekend. This week, I did get the chance to sit down and talk to an old friend of mine named Bradford Bauer. Even though our colleges do happen to be rivals, he went to UNH, but I don't hold it against him, and we have maintained a great friendship throughout this. So I hope you guys sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview. All right, hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Natural Science Daily. This week, I am with Bradford Bauer. Um, He is a longtime member of the Shorebird community, We originally met on Petit Manan Island when he was my island supervisor when we were both working for Maine Coastal Islands National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, He now works at Duxbury Beach running the shorebird monitoring program. So Bradford, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) So uh, Bradford, how long have you been with Duxbury Beach? So I've been with Duxbury Beach. Um, This will be my third field season. Um, But it's going to be my first season with the landowners, the Duxbury Beach Reservation. Who are the old landowners? Uh, They've always been the landowners. um, But up until a few years ago, they never had full-time staff. um, So it was always run through trustees and volunteers. So the shorebird monitoring program was run through the town of Duxbury. And they've kind of done the management aspect. They lease a large portion of the beach. Um, So this winter, the town approached the reservation and asked them to take take the shorebird monitoring aspect of the management over, and the the reservation agreed. So I went with the program. (laughs) Nice. Has it been different at all from the town to the landowners? In some aspects, yes. In some aspects, no. Um, so along with those changes, we're also, we've changed some of our monitoring protocols. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some brand new protocols this year, and there's some old ones that we updated. Obviously, it's a, it's a new organization, so payroll and HR and all of that is different as well. Mm-hmm. But the actual monitoring of um, the wildlife is essentially the same. Awesome. So you've been talking about the shorebird monitoring part. What birds do you monitor primarily? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, our program focuses on two species, um, the piping plover and the least tern. There's other species that we're interested in that don't typically nest on Duxbury Beach. So we have American oyster catchers that show up every year. They have nested on the beach in the past, but I think it's been five or six years since we've actually seen a nest from them on the beach. And then there's other shorebirds that utilize the beach during migration, um, roseate terns, red knots, um, all of those show up at some point in the summer that I'm hoping to get a little bit more involved in some surveys for them during migration. What does your management or monitoring consist of in the conservation of these birds? 
Yeah, so we're focused on the the protection of nesting shorebirds. So with the piping plovers and loose terns, um, we put up all of that symbolic fencing that I'm sure most people are familiar with if they've gone to a beach somewhere in New England during the summer. The field technicians are going to be out there um, actually nest searching, finding all of the piping clover nests. Um, and then we monitor the productivity. So did those nests hatch successfully or if not, what happened? And then how many of their chicks fledged? Did they fledge all four chicks um, or did they only fledge one or two or did they not fledge any? And if we can, determining the cause of chick loss as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so then from that, we get a productivity for the season. Um, and then the same thing applies for the least turns, but rather than individual nest success, um, it tends to be the full colony. So for those of our listeners that don't know what fledging is, correct me if I am wrong, Bradford, but that is when a bird is considered to be successfully out of the nest. Typically they can fly or kind of be self-reliant for the most part and you don't have to go back and like count them. They have technically like become part of the population. Air quotes. Yeah, so um, we don't consider it when they come out of the nest because piping plovers are precocial. Mm-hmm. Um, so they leave the nest within hours after hatching. Mm-hmm. Um, but we consider them to be fledged, um, capable of flight once they're able to have sustained flight for mm-hmm. more than 50 feet. Yeah. Um, so that's not just a just gliding, but actually flapping and supporting themselves more than 50 feet because right. obviously they could stand at the top of the dune and glide <laughs> down to the waterline which is technically right more than 50 feet but i consider that just a guided fall because they're not <laughs> actually flapping <laughs> guided falls are important okay yes it's but a start it's on for... way to flying but <laughs> <laughs> for anyone that's in during the fledging season if you're ever out on a beach watching these kinds of birds it's pretty easy to tell between a bird that knows what it's doing when it comes to flying and one that's kind of trying to learn and doing a lot of guided falling <laughs> and yeah. productivity is also the nesting success correct or the correct. success so in producing young it yes so it's the number of chicks fledged per pair so last year we had 46 fledglings on Duxbury Beach for piping plovers um, with 28 pairs Um, so not every pair fledged all of their chicks Mm -hmm. Um, some didn't fledge any um, and then some fledged all four of them Mm -hmm. so it's it's an average of how many nesting pairs you have on your site versus how many fledglings you have um, our productivity ended up being about, I think it was 1.68 um, or 1.64. Someone can do that math. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, um, as far as piping plovers go, that's a, a fairly good productivity, mm-hmm. um, which I always like to point out that it's that's one less than two chicks per pair piping plovers almost always lay four eggs, which means not every bird is going to make it. A lot of people, especially if it's their first time in the field, don't quite get that. And they're like, oh, 
some of these birds are going to die. And that's just the nature of working with wildlife that I think is a big learning curve for some people that it's when it's their first time in the in the field doing this type of work. Definitely. Like I when you're with a set of birds or a colony like we were on Petit Manan, mm-hmm. you you're with these birds and watching these birds every single day. So you you you're not supposed to get attached, but I mean, how can you not root for the little guys? They're like little cotton balls on sticks. They're adorable. And they are. it's definitely hard when you're like, well, even though I really want it, and you can't intervene because you got to let nature kind of do its thing. What are some reasons or some of the biggest reasons that you come across that plover chicks don't survive? Oh, gosh, so many. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest, obviously, being predation. Um, a lot of them get predated. Pretty much everything out there wants to eat plover chicks. We also see a lot of chick loss during extreme weather so if it's really hot out and there's not a lot of vegetation we tend to see chicks drop very quickly some just don't make it during those first few days of life usually i think it's like the first seven to ten days um, are the hardest and then after that usually your chicks are going to make it unless something drastic happens but i guess those are the main reasons obviously there's always human caused fatality that could happen as well but that's the whole point of our management program is to prevent that from happening (laughs) so for just kind of put it in perspective for the listeners if you've never seen a piping clover chick and i'll put up photos on the instagram once this episode is out they're literally the size of like when they're born kind of like a little bit bigger than a cotton ball and they have little baby legs and as soon as they're born they're off and running and the parents are like well now you have to take care of two insane four usually if they all hatch immediately insane yeah and insane little cotton balls and none of them want to go in the same direction so it is understandable that not all of them are going to make it and when you're that vulnerable and the only thing you really have to protect you is a mom pretending her wing is broken, things are going to happen. So you mentioned that one of your main roles is limiting kind of the human factor that Mm -hmm. pressures against plovers. What are some of those that really come to mind? Well, Duxbury Beach is an oversand vehicle beach. Um, So we do have a portion of the beach that has access to vehicles. So that right there is a huge human disturbance. So once the nests are expected to hatch, we'll put up what we call restricted areas, which are is basically a buffer zone between the nest or the brood range um, and any sort of vehicle activity. We'll also have smaller restricted areas for the pedestrian beach. Um, which some beaches don't do. It's something that we do just to help mitigate some of that recreation. Um, we're a very busy recreational beach, mm-hmm. um, so we want to do as best we can to help mitigate um, some of those more drastic human disturbances like vehicles. So a lot of our permits kind of revolve around vehicle use within unfledged plover chicks and then just general recreation in the vicinity of unfledged plover chicks. And for people listening, you may be like, well, if a plover chick sees a human or a car coming, why don't they just run out of the way? 
But these chicks, one of their biggest and most important attribute attributes is they are so well camouflaged. So if they feel threatened quite often, they'll just kind of hunker down and get really small. You guys can't see me, but I'm shrinking down like a pulver chick in front of Bradford right now. And they're like, if I don't move, nothing can see me. Therefore, I can't get eaten or die, which doesn't really work well when people are trying to move past you because if they don't see you, there's there's a risk there. So yeah. that that is why Bradford has to have a lot of the restrictions on the beach when the chicks are active because it's there's not a lot else you can do. Can we talk about the lease turns a little bit? Sure. So what do you do with them? Similar, um, same things? Very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, usually they start nesting later than the plovers do, so by protecting plover brood ranges, you end up protecting lease terns as well. We still put up restricted areas for the lease tern colonies. There's a little less monitoring to do because lease tern chicks are a little less mobile than plover chicks are. Mm-hmm. But again, we won't allow vehicle use within a certain distance of those brood ranges, or excuse me, the colonies ranges mm-hmm. uh, until those last turns have fledged. So for them, we're out there counting the in- number of incubating adults, the number of chicks, and what their age ranges are. So are they young? Are they older? Are they fledglings? Um, which gets really hard later in the season um, because we start getting fledglings from other sites hanging out in our turn colonies. <laughs> so you're and, like, do you belong here or not? Yeah, like you're looking at the calendar. I'm like, I shouldn't have any fledglings yet. I'm like, you're not from our site. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even go here. Yeah. So in that aspect too, it's really important to kind of know what's going on on your site so that you can accurately count the number of fledglings that are actually yours because like i said you're you're looking at the calendar and like i none of these chicks should be old enough to have fledglings yet i have three sitting right here and kind of keeping track of that they usually don't stick around as long mm-hmm. as fledglings from our site though so mm-hmm. that's helpful <laughs> i feel like in this kind of work one thing that you may not expect to be a skill that you need is kind of like an ability to be kind of like a little bit of a detective to be like, okay, I didn't expect these birds here. Or if a chick goes missing, kind of being able to, you know, process of elimination, think through some ways that it may have gone missing. Is that? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, missing is always relative too, because is, is it actually missing or is it just so well camouflaged that you're staring right at it and can't see it? Mm-hmm. Duxbury Beach is very cobbly. And a lot of the couples are the exact same size and shape as an adult plover. Um, <laughs> so if they sit down, boom, they're gone. But yeah, a lot of kind of the work that we do is a lot of investigative work of, okay, we lost a brood. No one has seen it in X number of hours. Let's start looking at you know some tracks in the sand. Are there coyote tracks? Are there fox tracks? Mm-hmm. Um, are there crows hanging around? Are there a lot of gulls hanging around? Is it possible that brood got predated? Or did they decide to take off down the beach? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where a lot of our historic data can help us out because generally we see the same birds nesting in the same spots 
and exhibiting a lot of the same behaviors they did the year before. Oh, okay. Um, so there's one brood, or at least one section of the beach. Our birds aren't random, so I don't know if it's the exact same adults that are doing this. But there's one section of our beach that every year there's a pair that after a week or so takes off down the beach and they end up walking two miles and they end up fledging their chicks in a completely different part of the beach than yeah. where they started. That's wild. And it's it's never like a day or two after. Um, I've seen that on other sites in my career where they nest in one location but forage in a different one so they immediately take their chicks elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and these ones I have no idea why they do it but the, <laughs> it's just one day I'm like watch these watch them they're gonna do it <laughs> and then all of a sudden the staff can't find the broods I'm like I bet you they headed north and <laughs> um, last year we we found them just in the nick of time they were on top of the dune getting ready to cross to Bayside um, which for those of you that are not familiar with Duxbury Beach we do have a road that runs the length of the beach it's a dirt road, but we do stop traffic so that the birds can cross safely. So I was literally like running over the dune as the chicks were coming down the dune. And like I stepped into the road as soon as the birds stepped into the road. And I was like, oh, we got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just having that familiarity with the birds and knowing that a brood in that area could do this kind of saved us. Um, there weren't any cars around, so it didn't really matter, but just that peace of mind. I was like, I know these birds are safe because I'm standing right here. <laughs> <laughs> so you've mentioned that you have some monitors. What is your main job aside from just kind of caring for the birds? And as the kind of lead or coordinator of the project, what is your like day-to-day life like during the field season? That's the word. I'm yeah. Um, so I should mention that my, my current title, the program coordinator, is a new title as of January this year. Yeet. <laughs> Before that, I was um, a supervisor. And a, a lot of the same functions are the same. So I'm in charge of all the hiring and all the training. And I oversee a lot of the scheduling. Though now I'm kind of hoping to pawn off scheduling to other people because (laughs) it's a major time suck to be honest it's not difficult it just takes forever Mm -hmm. and so I'll still oversee some of that scheduling make sure that we're kind of recording not recording oh my goodness scheduling everyone based on the monitoring needs Mm -hmm. um, that are based on our protocol permits but a lot of my job now is going to be moving more into kind of overseeing the data management so reviewing all of the data that's being collected to make sure it's being collected properly mm-hmm. and making sure that all of the data we're collecting is accurately being used to be implemented in the field for our management practices. So a lot of the data we collect like first thing in the morning then gets internally analyzed and we decide whether or not certain protocols have to be enacted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's the supervisors will help kind of delegate all of that to the shorebird monitors and work on the scheduling. So a lot of that I'm kind of overseeing. I'll do a lot of updates, um, whether daily or weekly is unclear at this point, (laughs) to my bosses as well as the um, state and federal regulators 
for plover management mm-hmm. and and then kind of long term too we're hoping to branch into some other projects so we're not just a shorebird monitoring program mm-hmm. or a coastal ecology program that right now 90 percent of that is shorebird monitoring <laughs> but the hope is down the line we can start doing you know migratory bird surveys mm-hmm. or vegetation surveys or even small mammal trapping right. um, i'm even looking into possibly getting my bander's license um so that we can do mist netting mm-hmm. because just from being an avid birder i know there's a lot of warblers that show up and utilize a small patch of trees that are on the beach yeah. that i'd really like to get a better understanding of are they nesting here? Or are they just passing through? Like, mm-hmm. I know some are nesting, but what is the actual diversity that we're seeing there that hasn't really been done and I think could open up a lot of interesting information about the beach that we haven't noticed before? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be huge, especially because those ecosystems are constantly changing in today's world of sea level rise and climate change and just to get good data and information on those for just even future reference is so important. Yeah. That's exciting. Uh, And also just seeing how it changes. Like if you don't have a baseline now, it doesn't matter what happens in 20 years because you don't know how it changed. Like you don't know if it has changed at all unless you get that data now. That's why we were doing the monitoring out on East Amatuli two summers ago, last summer, because when that big oil spill happened out in the Gulf of Alaska. Um, It was like the Exxon oil spill, I believe. But anyways, when they went out to see what the effect had been on the seabirds, they were like, well, we didn't really have a great base level anyway. So they couldn't really fully gauge just how awful it had really affected the ecosystem. So they got quite a bit of money from these oil companies to then get a good baseline, have good monitoring, so if this ever happens again, we can be like, oh, okay, yeah, the MERS were really affected. So it's it's important for all these places to have that kind of baseline. Yeah, definitely. Um, I did a similar thing on a much smaller scale, literally because it was invertebrates. Um, <laughs> but there was a, a dredging project, and they were going to be removing sand from one side of the barrier beach and putting it out on the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they wanted to get an idea of what the invertebrates were on that beach. Um, very generalized. I think we only went down to like a genus or family. Mm-hmm. It, we weren't going for exact species. Um, but just to get an idea and quantity of invertebrates before we, one, removed a bunch of sand and two, also piled up a bunch of sand mm-hmm. because plovers are substrate feeders. True. For the most part. So if you're going to be piling on three, no, it's more than that, but, you know, like three feet worth of sand, you might kill all of the invertebrate prey that these birds rely on. Right. Um, So in creating more nesting habitat, you could actually be hindering them um, because they have nothing to eat. I I have never thought of that aspect of it. Because in, in my head, I always just figure that, like, whatever's on the top, they'll eat. But, I mean, if you're covering everything on the top, it's going to take a while for that to be the new top, for there to be food available. Because these birds can't, they don't really dig, and their beak isn't that long. I mean, it's built for what they need, but that's really yeah. fascinating. 
Yeah, I, I don't know what the end results were for that project because I don't work for that company anymore. But <laughs> um, And that dredging project was like a five-year dredging project or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they were doing it very slowly um, to have as minimal impact as possible. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, yeah, it's one of those things of I was there for that baseline data, but they wouldn't know if they mm-hmm. didn't take the baseline data. So baseline data is important. know your baseline data (laughs) yeah okay so if it's okay with you i kind of want to switch gears just a little bit um to talk about the other thing that i feel like you can really speak to so it's pretty safe to say that you've been incredibly successful so far in the natural science field you know your shit and you're teaching other people and leading other people in conservation of some very important and threatened species. But what a lot of these listeners may not know is you're also a hella confident gay man and I adore you for it. And in the past till, I know, I feel like pretty recently, this natural science field has been super dominated by just straight white men. There hasn't been a lot of diversity in this field till very recently. Do you feel like you have ever experienced prejudice for that aspect of your life even though it shouldn't have anything to do with conservation people are judgmental yeah i kind of want to say yes and no Mm -hmm. Um, that's fine in a way that of the jobs that i've worked and the jobs that i've accepted i haven't really felt any sort of prejudice from my employers or my employees mm-hmm. with the exception of some summer jobs in college but i think it more it affects me more in the types of jobs that i apply for so as far as kind of shorebird work goes the gulf coast and down in florida and along like louisiana and mississippi and stuff like that fantastic places for shorebirds but a lot of these remote areas can be a little bit more conservative and I've I, I've had that kind of been told to me um, when I was considering applying for these positions and I ultimately didn't mm-hmm. um, just because I might get a lot of negative feedback and so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that like I've foregone some possibly really beneficial positions because there is a fear of, uh, of of the prejudice that's there. And obviously, I've never I've never been to these places, so I don't know if it actually would have occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't felt feel comfortable subjecting myself to that for six months, eight months, a right. year long position kind of thing mm-hmm. because. Starting a new job in a new place is already intimidating enough, but to have to add the concern that someone may not accept you for something completely unrelated to your skill and ability to do a job, I just feel like that's a lot to also take on and handle. Yeah, absolutely. And that's always something that I, now that I am a supervisor and am a hiring manager, if you will, that I always like to make sure that people feel comfortable. Um, obviously, I can't control what the beachgoers do, but I can at least make sure that my monitors feel comfortable working for our organization. And we, we've hired LGBT people in the past and will continue to. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's not even something that we even think about right. in the hiring process. Like, I know a lot of people are concerned um, when they're con- 
considering the position, but I mean, legally, it's not something we should even be concerned about, but it's not even something that crosses my mind, but something that I'm happy to be able to contribute to and provide that, um, that stepping stone into their career path that they want and giving them a positive outlook, um, for their position. Having known you for quite a long time now, and I mean, even before knowing you, it just being part of the LGBT community never really phased me. If that was someone's choice, then cool. Good for you. I doesn't never really like change my mind either way. I never thought about how it could affect someone's thoughts in their career till I was at a National Wildlife Society meeting with a friend um, who's also part of the LGBT community. And there was a networking event and there was a table um, for people that were part of that community. And he was trying to find it and so we could meet more people. And I didn't really understand like why it mattered because I was like, well, they're all wildlifers. Like, what's it matter? But for him, I mean, I, I just wasn't thinking about it because I see women in wildlife every day now. Uh, half the really successful wildlifers I know are women. And I can understand how it's important for him to see other successful people from the LGBTQ community to also be successful in wildlife to be like, hey, I can do that. Same reason people want women in the White House. Because you don't really feel like you can do it unless you see that role model to be like, they did it. I can do it too. And that's when it kind of hit me that not everyone is super chill with it. And I am glad that there are people like you that are setting the example. Like, you can do awesome things no matter what. So Yeah, and I think um, one of the reasons that I haven't really ever kind of felt that pressure um, mm. in my positions. One is because I've always been in really female-dominated organizations, mm. which was never really intentional. Um, but I, I was reflecting on this um, when you asked me to be on the podcast. But when I worked at Mass Audubon, all of my all of like the year-round staff were female, mm. and our state and federal regulators for piping plovers are female and all the staff that I work with now are female mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and even some of the jobs I did in college the ones that really stuck with me were all female dominated kind of management level positions mm-hmm. um, which I think is awesome yeah. um, that I almost like I don't have these negative experiences mm-hmm because I've had the opportunity to work with all these organizations that have just been very kind of empowering to mm-hmm. women and the LGBT community and stuff like that that I, I think is awesome um, and hope it continues that way. <laughs> right. I'm happy to see that the people that are part of the natural science field, it's I feel like it's diversifying with time. It's not but, just like... Because like some jobs you think of and you think that they're kind of like a gender specific position which is unfortunate but I feel like as time progresses more and more people think of a wildlife biologist and they don't have a specific image in mind for what a wildlife biologist should be except for like maybe Jane Goodall because like everyone knows her and she's awesome but like I am proud to be part of this field for that yeah the only thing that I I love this field and I'm, I'm very happy to be a part of it. I only, I think the only thing that we can work on is being more inclusive into minorities Mm -hmm. Uh, because it, just the nature of our work 
being very seasonal and um, doing a lot of these short field seasons, um, you kind of have to pay your dues. And if you can't afford to bounce around from seasonal job to seasonal job, Mm -hmm. that the field kind of gets a little whitewashed, if you will, um, which I think is unfortunate because there's a lot of really smart, intelligent people that would love to be in this field that just can't. Mm -hmm. I actually, one of the people that I offered a supervisor position to this season turned it down because she got a job full time with benefits outside of our field. Like Mm -hmm. she left the field because it came down to the point that, you know, she had to pay her bills and I totally get it. And it's, it's so unfortunate because her references were glowing of like, yes, supervisor is the next step like she's so ready for this like this is the perfect position for her Mm -hmm. but you know other circumstances in her life made her unfortunately leave the field completely which is unfortunate because I think if she had been able to stay in that she could you know contribute so much more to the the field and to piping plover work in general Mm -hmm. that's something that Kylie and I have talked quite a bit about it's just it's so hard to expect people to spend two to three years of their life, if not more, hopping from job to job, potentially not making any money. Especially once you graduate college, it's, I mean, even before then, there's struggles, but like to have to pay, add a student debt onto that and still be like, I'm just a field technician. Like that is just so hard. And I don't know what would have to happen to change that. I don't know, maybe just more project funding so people can get paid more. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not one of the higher ups that contributes to these things but it's just it is a frustrating aspect i mean this is going to be my sixth season in shorebird and seabird work i only just got offered a full-time job um i've been working on duxbury beach for as i mentioned this will be my third season Mm -hmm. those first two seasons i was Mm part-time i was not a year-round employee that you know, even though I have the experience and, you know, I've been doing, been doing the jobs within the program, it still took me to my third year to actually get the benefits with it too. Yeah. Um, so it can be really tough. And I was fortunate enough to be able to also go to grad school <laughs> during that downtime and kind of make the most of that part-time work. But if I had to get another job like I wouldn't be working at Duxbury Beach because I would have had to take time off and yes it's been year-round but still part-time through the winter so right it's just it's hard so, <laughs> I appreciate you bringing up that point because that is another part of this field that like I I love this field but we're not perfect and that's part of the reason we're doing this podcast is just to try and get information out there and It's hard to talk people into seeing that this is an amazing career because it's not going to be easy. And some people don't make it because there's life happens and you can't, you know, snuggling puffins only gets you so far. Yeah. So one thing, if you wouldn't mind me kind of going on my rant. Oh, yeah, go uh, for it. I love a good rant. You know that. Is for those of you that are still in school um i highly highly recommend taking courses outside of your degree field because the stuff that i'm now learning to do um and the stuff that prevented me from moving forward in my career 
a few years ago was all business stuff. Like Mm -hmm. take a business course, take a business management course if you have the opportunity because a lot of like the difference between seasonal and full-time jobs is not the amount of experience you have with a certain species or doing a certain type of survey work. It's the ability to actually manage the project and manage the people and manage the money mm-hmm. that um, I don't know if you Maine was a little bit different but I never got those experiences in college it wasn't until after that I was like what do you mean I have to balance a budget like right yeah no um, way. I would have no idea how to get a how to even start a hiring process if I had to hire people how I would have to like how do you choose how do you decide what how do you know Who's going to be the best? Like, yeah, you can read a resume and be like, yeah, this person probably knows something. But people on paper and people in person can be very different. Or, like, how the hell do you manage a schedule for, like, what, you have, like, 60 monitors? 30 monitors? Um, so with the change, we went from last year we had about 80 monitors. This year we're going to have about 30 to 40 of them. That's still uh, so many people's lives to try and balance and... Because, like, yeah, you can make a schedule, but people have lives and doctor's appointments and family obligations, and some of them may have a second job that they need to work or around. pandemics. <laughs> True. <laughs> Surprise, guys, we're still in a corona pandemic. In case, you know, you got super sidetracked by seabirds and shorebirds. <sighs> yeah. So, have we've kind of talked about it in our personal time, but do you want to just kind of mention how this may be affecting a little bit of your field season? If you can, yeah, um, I'm or not going to go into concerned. too much detail. Yeah, because, if you just, um, you know, we we haven't made any sort of final decisions, but yeah. wildlife management in Massachusetts at this time um, is still considered essential work. Mm-hmm. So we can still do what we're doing, and but at the same time, the beach was closed for public safety concerns and public health concerns. And a lot of our permits are surrounded, surrounding recreational activity in un, in the vicinity of unfledged plover chicks. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the beach is closed, we don't have recreational activity. Mm-hmm. What do we actually need to be doing for our permits? Mm-hmm. Um, so do we actually even need 30, 40, 80 shorebird monitors? And how is that going to affect... Obviously, that affects our hiring, but mm-hmm. how does that affect our permits? How does that affect our funding for the, the program? And, you know, the birds don't know what's going on. They're out right. there scraping and laying <laughs> nests and stuff like that, and they're scraping way too early, and it's freaking me out. Mm-hmm. But kind of long-term, well, not long-term, but later in the season, eggs are going to start hatching. And we can't just simply decide the beach will be reopened tomorrow, Um because all of our staff needs to be hired and trained. So even if the governor says, you know, everything's lifted tomorrow, we are still like three weeks behind because we have to train everyone. We have to make sure we know where all the birds are and not just where they are, but what are their behaviors? Do they travel half the length of the beach every day? Mm-hmm. Do they cross from Oceanside to Bayside? All of that stuff we have to know before we can just let people onto the beach Um, otherwise we could have some pretty disastrous effects and at one 
on one hand, I'm like, the birds are going to love this. On the mm. other hand, I'm like, oh, dear God, they're going to nest everywhere. Right. <laughs> it's um, probably good for the have... birds, but to be a manager, like, we're, you're already struggling because animals never want to com- cooperate and to just add more problems to that. Yeah. So another kind of fun fact, we had a parking lot that was kind of crumbling Mm-hmm. Um, and rather than repaving, we decided to just leave it as a dirt lot. Mm-hmm. That work was finished earlier this week, and then the beach closed. And I made the lovely observation that I'm pretty sure my boss was not too happy about. But we essentially just created an overwash fan, which is prime nesting habitat for piping plovers in the middle of a parking lot. That there's no cars now, but there's going to be. Know, reopen in two three weeks we could have a nest there (laughs) right and people aren't really Uh, in a clogged up summer beach people aren't going to want to be listening to your monitors being like you can't park here because there's a nest they're going to be like well tough tomatoes i play taxes like yeah i can yeah so it's from that aspect too it's like we have some kind of protocols that we could do to um, deter them from nesting in a place like that and so we're in this situation now of like well what protocols can we do if we're not doing the entire permit Mm -hmm. what can we do now um and so that's above my head but i think my bosses have pretty much been in meetings all week with the town manager with the state regulators with the federal regulators trying to figure out what the heck we're doing because this pandemic is unprecedented like no one knows what we're doing right no, we've never been through this before. It's it's yeah. insane. Well, to end this on a positive note, I've been doing this on a lot of the other episodes, but I think it's really fun. And we were doing this over Snapchat the other day. Would you like to play a couple rounds of Would You Rather with me? I would love to. <laughs> okay. Would you rather have a crappy field job or a crappy field crew and why? crappy field job Mm -hmm. Um, because I can make the most of the situation and I can work my ass off to get something done and make the most of it Mm -hmm. Um, but if the crew isn't pulling their weight and not doing what they're supposed to be doing Mm -hmm. it just puts more work on me um, to not only do my job but also do everyone else's Mm -hmm. So I'd rather just have a crappy situation from the get-go and make most of it rather than it's supposed to be this, but the other people aren't pulling their weight. Right. So to preface the next Would You Rather, Bradford and I worked on an island with two other good friends of ours, Michaela and Jenna. And on the island, we worked with puffins. And the first time that Bradford and I learned how to band a puffin together, we learned... So... We also banded a lot of turns, and when the turns got fussy, you could just like put their your their your finger in their beak, and they just hold it and be like, "Ha, I've won!" And then they're distracted, and you can ban them. So this puffin was being fussy, and we didn't quite know what we were doing. <laughs> and Bradford was holding it, and I was like, "Ah, this is fine. I'll just give it my finger, and it will hold it, and everything will be fine." Because puffins aren't that big, so I was like, "It can't be that bad." <sighs> So I hand this stupid puffin my finger. It proceeds to take the strength of like 15 grown men and try and break my finger. And 
Bradford's trying to band it and Jenna's trying to help and I'm trying to not lose a finger and I was like guys guys and I also don't want to hurt the bird so birds can be mean turns on the other hand like to dive bomb people in the head so Bradford would you rather get bit by three puffins in one day or get attacked by 15 turns 15 turns (laughs) (laughs) and that just goes to show how evil puffins are well, I guess I should also ask a follow-up question mm-hmm. of what species of tern? Oh, common tern all the way. I'm not going to make this easy. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, these terns rarely actually make contact, and mm-hmm. you can poop on me all day. I don't care. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think I would still prefer the terns because, yeah, they, I mean, they pretty much did that all summer anyway. That right. <laughs> um, you kind of just get used to it and... Um, I rarely flinch when I get dive bombed by a turn at this point, but mm-hmm. puffins, I'm still like, have a little PTSD from that. <laughs> I swear I might still have some scars. Yeah, I have a scar. I can see it on my hand. Jenna definitely still has scars from her hands. <laughs> Poor Jenna. Oh. Jenna <laughs> almost died a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> we love you, Jenna. We love you. I hope you're listening. Please be listening. Another fact about turns is if they're not dive bombing you, they're pooping on you. And they're very accurate with their poop. Like, it's scary so accurate. accurate. Like, I don't even think, like, basketball players are this accurate with their shots as per- turns are with their shit. I got, <laughs> so I was wearing a baseball cap and sunglasses, and they somehow got poop in my eye. <laughs> well, that's perfect. I don't know how they did it, but I was like, there is a very small gap that you can actually, like, get poop into someone's <laughs> eye when they're wearing sunglasses and a baseball cap. I got pink eye. It was, it was oh bad. Oh, my God. But like, <laughs> so this will help you make it. I got turn poop in my eye. <laughs> <laughs> this will help you make an educated choice for my next question. Would you rather get turn poop in your eye or turn poop in your mouth? I'm talking the chunky stuff, not the nice, like, creamy white stuff. I, I would mm. rather take the pink eye than get it in my mouth. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't I've really taste really like anything. I've actually had turn poop in my mouth. Like, mm. I've had it in my eye, in my ear. Um, at least turn last year got it really good in my ear. Like, wet, <laughs> the wettest loogie you can think of. Just like, <laughs> right deep into the ear canal. Mm. Like, it was the first one I had all summer, too. Like, they didn't even get better with AIM. Um, because for those of you that haven't worked in a turn colony, they get better with practice. Oh, yeah. Once they recognize you and know your weak spots, they capitalize. Um, and this was, like, right at the beginning of the season, just straight in my ear. And I was <laughs> I was trying to, like, teach some of my seasonal staff and, like, training on turns at that time. And so I was, like, standing in front of, like, I think it was, like, five other people and just, like, oh, <laughs> wet in my ear, like, stopped mid-sentence. And I was, like, gross. <laughs> and then continued to talk as, like, term poop was, like, dripping down my ear. And <laughs> I'm pretty sure I scarred everyone for life. But... Yeah, it, that'll do it. Because no matter how bad or gross this sounds, we're saying it out of love. This is, like, the highlight of our life. Being in colonies and with shorebirds and seabirds, that's just, it's great. Yes. 
I have a question for you. <gasps> Ooh, and this which, hasn't happened yet. <laughs> which I feel like I probably know the answer, but would you rather have a petrol puke all over you or a guillemot poop all over you? So, for those of you sitting at home, the petrol he's talking about is a most likely a Legia Storm petrol, but there are multiple types of Storm petrol, but we work with Legia Storm petrols. Most innocent tiny cute little babies on the planet their puke is the most neon orange shit nasty oil stuff you can think of the smell never leaves you guillemots however are another seabird i call them the stiletto of the sea because they're red on the bottom because of their legs and they're black and they have white accents these birds shit like three times their weight every time they poop it's and they eat almost exclusively rock gunnel, mm. so it's also, like, bright red. Yeah. I I think I'm going to have to go with the petrol. I'd rather get puked on by a petrol just because I could never be mad at a petrol because I love them. And uh, Guillemots is just everywhere. Like, you think you get it all off, and then it's like, oh, it's on my cheek. It's in my hands. It's in my hair. It's down my boot. And it just never goes away. (sighs) All right. Well, thank you, Bradford, for coming on the podcast. This has been so much fun, and I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I've been so excited to come on since you started the podcast. Um, So... (laughs) I'm excited to be here. I wish we could do this in in, in person, but you know, social distancing. So yeah, um, I'll make I'll make the most of it. I'll have to come down and visit this uh, shorebird season when all of this is lifted and everything's back to normal. I'll just come and hang out on the beach with you for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. Well, that's perfect timing because Jack just got here. He's gonna walk through the door. Hi. See you guys. Alright guys, so that is all I have for you this week on Natural Science Daily. For those of you who are interested in seeing what a piping plover or a least turn looks like, I will have some photos up on the Instagram at natural underscore science underscore daily. And this was my second Skype interview for those of you who haven't really been staying up to date on the podcast. So I am so glad that I think I finally have all the kinks out, which will really help me to kind of produce more content during these quarantine times where I can't do in-person interviews. But most importantly, I hope everyone is staying safe and trying to keep an upbeat attitude. Till next time, I hope you guys continue to make natural science part of your daily conversation. Bye!